0: Welcome, 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 everybody. This is Islam for Christians, episode 51, Islamic History, circa 619, The Year of Sorrow, Part 2, The Prophet Without a Home. The year went on, and Muhammad's misery continued. Khadijah was gone, and this broke Muhammad's heart, and Abu Talib was gone. And as much as he loved Khadijah, this absence, on a purely practical level, may have been even more important. Muhammad had to find a home outside of Mecca. This place just was not safe. The Banu Hashim, which was his clan, they were not converting to Islam. And Muhammad's position became more and more precarious. Perhaps they wouldn't kill him. Maybe out of respect for Abu Talib or some other reason. You know, and perhaps no one wanted to start any blood feuds with the Banu Hashim, or to take any risks related to that. But there was no guarantee, and things were starting to get ugly. Now, no one was directly threatening to kill Muhammad at this point. But going back to the boycott, you know, anyone with good sense can see... There was just a general environment of insecurity. And this was even worse than the boycott. Because even Abu Bakr considered migrating to Abyssinia at this point. It was getting to the point where any Muslim, unless physically intimidating, you know, a big guy, a great warrior like Umar or Hamza, anyone else simply could not feel safe on the streets of Mecca. You know, if even Abu Bakr was a target, How much larger a target would Muhammad have been? What really would it have taken to organize an assassination at this point? Just how worried should Muhammad have been? Exactly what was his risk profile walking the streets of Mecca? It's really hard to put yourself in the headspace of the Meccan Muslims during this period, and of Muhammad as well. In a similar way, it was very, very difficult to understand their mindset during the boycott. So, like with the boycott, I, I want to try to relate this whenever possible to something more people are going to understand. You know, all the people out there who are not Islamic scholars or specialists in ancient Arabia, which is basically every single one of us. So, here's a modern parallel. I want to give you before going further into this story. Um, And this is actually a very crazy story uh, I'm going to be telling you. And one I guarantee you have never heard. Um, It may seem completely off base, but this is relevant to this area of Islamic history. I promise. Back in 2008, Barack Obama was the earliest candidate to receive Secret Service protection. For those outside of the United States, the Secret Service is that agency that protects high profile political figures. This agency actually started by fighting counterfeiting, which it still does, but somehow, some way, it became the service that protects the president and some presidential candidates. It's what they're most famous for. And Barack Obama, potentially being the first black president at the time, the offer of protection came extremely early. Now, no one knows whether there really was a serious threat of white supremacists doing anything real, you know, to really, really ensure that there would never be a black president, because these groups tend to be extremely small and generally more laughed at than feared. Few people take them seriously. You know, and half their agents, honestly, tend to be undercover federal agents. We saw something very recently like this. But at the very least, Barack Obama was entering a precarious, uncertain, and potentially dangerous situation. More likely, he was in more danger from an individual than a group, probably. Because in my lifetime, Racist individuals have done far, far more damage than actual racist groups. And that's just a huge wild card when it comes to a person's security. Because how do you stop that? Just a person, some guy, you know, particularly for a famous person, you just don't know how, you know, some random person is going to act when you come up to them. You don't know the type of person who is going to walk up to you on any given day and what they might be capable of.
1: So it's 2008.
0: I still remember, I believe it was the early winter of 2008. I don't know for sure, but I was wearing a heavy coat. I remember that much. So it was definitely the winter months. And it already seemed likely that Barack Obama was going to be the Democratic nominee. Still, even with this, his lack of security was flabbergasting. It blew me away. And I saw this firsthand. There was a a very quickly organized political event with Barack Obama. It was actually underway by the time I heard about it. Now this event was invitation only, Or maybe they were selling tickets, I don't remember for sure. But obviously I was way too late to get a ticket or to get whatever it is that can get you into this building. So I didn't have a ticket for the event. But the arena was right down the street from my girlfriend's place. And I happened to be there at the time, so I figured I'd wander down there just for fun. When something newsworthy happens nearby, you check it out, right? I mean, why not? What else else are you going to do? The event was already underway, so no one was really paying any attention. (laughs) So I simply opened the door and walked on in. I think someone nodded at me, but I have no idea what that person's role was. It could have been a security guy, but it also could have been a janitor for all I know. But whoever it was, he was either really laid back or had just mistaken me for someone in Obama's entourage or maybe somebody else who worked there. I don't know. I'm not sure why, but I do have a certain type of face that people instinctually trust. I'm that guy Taurus always stopped to ask directions, the person who gets handed a phone by a stranger to take a picture of a group. No one has ever looked at me and thought, wow, that guy looks dangerous. So here I am, a random person who hasn't been checked for anything. I go down the stairs toward the event stage. Michelle Obama was finishing a speech, and I was surprised how few people were actually there. They must have really restricted those tickets. I assume the people in there had been patted down and screened in some way. I'm actually 99% sure that they were, because Chicago is a pretty violent city, and even then, I think my country had more guns than people. It certainly does now. You can't even go to a football game without getting patted down or going through a metal detector. So surely, an arena event with a famous politician would have the same standards, wouldn't it? But still, no one checked me. After a while, Barack Obama was shaking hands and taking pictures. I was surprised how easy it was to make my way into his path. So... I got as close as maybe an arm's length from him, and then I pulled a large metal object from my coat pocket, aimed it at the man I recognized as Barack Hussein Obama, and then I took a shot. And I got a pretty decent picture. If I had been pushier, it could have been a selfie. Only later did I think about the insane potential, the historic potential, of what had just happened. I could have had a dozen Uzis under my coat like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix. Is it really this easy to get to a presidential candidate? You know, the situation I was in is similar to the sort of serendipitous situation that Lee Harvey Oswald found himself in before he shot Kennedy or John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater sneaking up on Abraham Lincoln. Only I was a curious onlooker not some lunatic who wanted to prove something by shooting a famous person or a person with a political axe to grind. Incidentally, this was the exact same arena eight years later that became so crazy, so infiltrated with riotous protesters, it was the only time, at least that I know of, that a Donald Trump rally was canceled due to rioting. And I was at that one too, (laughs) not as a participant on either side, mind you but as more of a tourist. The characters outside these events are hilarious. I highly recommend it if you have a chance. Really, in any country, I would think. But in America, they're particularly funny. You don't need a ticket to get inside. Just hang around the venue. You will be handed so many things, and you'll read them and think, they cannot possibly believe this, can they? From communists to anarchists to fascists to religious cults. It's like a wonderful circus of bad ideas. It's so much fun. Anyway, Barack Obama in early 2008 was in a somewhat similar security situation to Muhammad after the death of Abu Talib. See, I told you there would be a point. Obama was getting vague threats that were probably empty, and he was being treated very poorly by some isolated people and anyone running a campaign theme of change, if you think about it, is going to scare some people. Even if it is the vanilla, vague variety of change that Obama was offering that year. So, how many people do you think found themselves in the same situation I was in earlier? How many random people would have had the opportunity to become a world-famous assassin? Three? Four? Ten, hundreds, thousands? Thousands? It's really hard to say. In my case, there was one important thing missing. Well, two things missing, actually. One, I didn't have a weapon. And two, more importantly, I didn't want to kill anyone. But how many times does that situation, the situation that I was in, how many times does that have to repeat itself before the candidate encounters someone with the means and the motive? That's the kind of thing that had to be going through Muhammad's mind as the ugly incidents piled up around Mecca. Rotting animal guts thrown into his food, dirt on his face, bloody sheep guts thrown on him as he prayed. How many times does that happen before it's not garbage? It's a sword in his back.
1: Now, was someone
0: actually going to kill Barack Obama? even without the Secret Service protection? Probably not, at least by the percentages. Like Mohammed, I think, absent any serious protection, he was more likely to not be killed than killed, at least before he was president. But let's say the killed percentage, the likelihood of being assassinated, was as high as 1 or 2%. And it may have been higher, maybe 10%. I mean, no one really knows. This is just a thought exercise. Now, over a long enough timeline, that percentage compounds itself and dramatically increases the risk over time. Given that, would you play those odds? Would you be comfortable in that environment? No, I wouldn't either. Definitely not. Because at some point, some person is going to be in the right place at the right time. And in the Obama example, the next person may have been very different than me. May have had very different motives than I had. You know, I just thought this was a very interesting thing. I thought it was cool that one of my fellow Chicagoans was running for president. It doesn't happen every day. Some other person may have thought hey, this can make me famous. And judging my history, there doesn't even have to be a reason for these things. How many famous assassins really had a good reason? You know, in my country, when it comes to presidents, uh, political assassinations and assassination attempts, like in the most recent case of Ronald Reagan, which of course was almost 40 years ago, They're mostly random occurrences, just an intersection of fame, power, and mental illness from Oswald to President Garfield's killer to President McKinley's killer to whoever that guy was who shot Reagan. I can never remember his name. It's just a string of random lunatics, you know, just people often in an opportune place for a random reason, much like my run in with Barack Obama. And if you think about it, in American history, four presidents have been assassinated. Only one, Abraham Lincoln, was actually killed for some kind of coherent political reason. And that's the random danger of fame. Back in the day, in another career, an editor once joked with me after I was given a weekly column complete with my picture in the newspaper next to the title, he joked, Congratulations! You are now 100 times more likely to be murdered. Now we laughed, but it wasn't entirely a joke. Because he was right. Even modest fame exposes you to crazy, dangerous people. Similarly, with Muhammad, someone could have killed him for any reason. Just to please some random god, maybe or a family member, or even a woman who may not have liked Muhammad. And I have to believe there are plenty of people in Mecca who would, have had, who would have greatly rewarded Muhammad's assassin, whoever it may be. Or it could have just been some jerk having a bad day. Either way, this really is an untenable situation, especially for a guy with a family. And with every passing month, that percentage likelihood that he was going to be killed probably went up a few points. So the odds were increasingly not in Muhammad's favor.
1: Certainly aware
0: of this, Muhammad naturally went looking for a new home. Abyssinia would seem like an ideal location, if you remember previous history episodes. The king there liked the Muslims, and many of them were already there. So, why not just head to Abyssinia and set up shop there? This is one of those super annoying holes in a historical story. It really actually does bother me we don't know why he didn't go to Abyssinia. Only it's doubly frustrating because it's history, it's not literature. You know, this actually happened. So. What was Muhammad thinking? There was, obviously, some reason Muhammad rejected this idea. I've never seen anyone talk about it though. I just haven't been able to find any kind of really discussion at all about this, let alone a serious discussion among serious historians. So, I just have to guess. Perhaps Muhammad didn't want to seem like a threat to the Christian king. Or perhaps he felt God didn't want him to leave Arabia. As always, if someone has an answer to this, I would really,
1: really love to hear it. So
0: Muhammad starts to look for a new home for himself and for his followers. And he chose the nearest city, Taif. It's about 100 kilometers southeast of Mecca, or about 60 miles that really shows you how sparse the settlements are in this part of Arabia. I think because you just have to set up wherever an oasis can be found. You just don't have a whole lot of options about where to put a city. And it seems the only reason Taif was chosen was because of its proximity, just because it's close, not because he had some special hope for these people. So along with Muhammad, Zaid, his adopted son, went on the journey as well. Muhammad managed to get an audience with three prominent tribal leaders in Taif, and it did not go very well. In fact, it went horribly. Before long, Muhammad and Zaid were basically being stoned out of town, taking refuge in an orchard. And he could take refuge in this orchard because it just happened to be owned by people from his tribe, the Quraysh. Taking pity on Muhammad, the owners sent a slave to give him grapes. And it just happened to be a Christian slave. And this Christian slave was from Nineveh, which was the home to the famous Jonah from the Bible. So the slave told Muhammad this. And to his surprise, Muhammad was actually able to tell him about Jonah, which must have come as some surprise. Despite his failure with the pagans of Taif, at this point, Muhammad did have a small success. He was able to make at least one conversion out of this Christian slave in
1: that moment.
0: So... At least that was something. Muhammad had one convert. you know, And I know as, for our audience, you'd prefer it was not a Christian convert. You'd much rather have a pagan convert. But from his perspective, this was a great thing. But he would be leaving town. But before he left for good, Muhammad actually got an offer. Now, this was not from the people of Taif. This was about the people of Taif. And the offer came from an angel. Or perhaps you could think of it as a temptation. An angel comes to Muhammad and offers to destroy the town by collapsing the nearby mountains onto Taif. But Muhammad declined with a rather interesting point. This is his reasoning. He thought, no, these people did not convert to Islam. But, if they are left alive, perhaps their children will, and their children, and their children's children. And, as it turns out, he was right. Taif has now produced 1,400 years' worth of Muslims. If you look at the city's current population, which is about 700,000, probably all of them Muslims, that's quite a return on Muhammad's merciful investment. And if you think about it, that is the power of mercy, the potential in every human being, the potential redemption. You see this in religion as well, from the gospels, tax collectors, to Paul, to Umar, to even arguably Abu Sufyan. You'll hear more about him later, This not later in this episode, but much later in the uh, Islamic history episodes. This is one reason God's prophets don't seem to have much interest in obliterating those who reject God, on, on earth anyway, because there's always that potential for redemption, for the person or place to change, and, you know, there probably are some good people in that place anywhere, anyway, you know, anywhere there's going to be good people, maybe believing people. The longer you let them live, the greater their chance for redemption. And for the non-believers, the greater the chance that, over time, they will become believers. Muhammad was actually following the example of Jesus in this.
1: Now Jesus put it this way.
0: This is Mark 6.11. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them.
1: So, after Muhammad
0: shook off Taif, I believe that night, Muhammad was praying in the middle of the night, and he accidentally won several more converts while doing this, only these were not people. These were jinn. And again, sorry if you've heard this before, but for those who are new, jinn, j i n n, they are spirits who are made of fire, like people, they have free will. So they're basically like people, but invisible and with a different base element. So these jinn encounter Muhammad, and his prayers move them so much that they go back to their homes and spread the word. According to the story, these jinn were from Nasibin. I think Nasibin refers to a city on the Turkish-Syrian border, or on the modern Turkish-Syrian border. So they had traveled a very, very long way. And they took the message to the northern part of what the Arabs probably considered to be the known world, or at least to them. I should note that that story is not just some kind of throwaway anecdote somewhere in the histories. Um, it's actually a pretty important part of the Islamic story, simply because it is actually referenced in the Quran. It's the setup for the sermon that begins Surah 72, which is named, appropriately, Al-Jin. And more details about the story itself are in Surah 46, verses 29 to 31. So, I'll just read that for you real quick here. This is the Mustafa Katab translation. Remember, O Prophet, when we sent a group of jinn your way to listen to the Quran. Then, upon hearing it, they said to one another, Listen quietly. Then, when it was over, they returned to their fellow jinn as warners. They declared, O our fellow jinn, we have truly heard a scripture revealed after Moses, confirming what came before it. It guides to the truth and the straight way. O our fellow jinn, respond to the caller of Allah and believe in him. He will forgive your sins and protect you from a painful punishment. So, again, just to reiterate, there is another success here from Taif. It's a very, very, very small success. A small consolation prize for the painful rejection Muhammad had just experienced, but technically a success nonetheless. The problem now was, if not Taif, where? What of Mecca? The situation was becoming progressively dangerous, perhaps e- perhaps exponentially so, you know, at least worse by the day. Now, that's also why I used the analogy here of Obama's candidacy earlier, because that parallel works at this point in Muhammad's story as well. In 2008, every passing day made it more likely that Barack Obama would be the next president from the time that he looked like a real serious rival to Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination, to when he won Iowa, to when he took the delegate lead, then to the convention, and to the polling matchup, to the financial crash that basically meant that any Republican, not just John McCain, was going to be completely unelectable in that false political environment. Every step meant more and more danger. And Obama's protectors had to work harder and harder. And with every passing day that made an Obama presidency more likely, the security tightened and it became more difficult. Day by day, it became more difficult for a random person like me or for someone dangerous to just go up to the candidate and say hello. And that made perfect sense the security
1: grew with the danger.
0: The same thing happened to Muhammad when he was away in Taif. Day after day, it made it more likely that someone was going to kill him as soon as he entered the city. The histories don't really give a specific reason for this, but my guess is that his absence, however brief, was a signal of weakness a signal to the wolves that right now might be a good time to move in on that weakened prey. And they knew why he was in Taif, which in a way could make him even less sympathetic, almost like a traitor to Mecca, which was his city, or a potential traitor at least, because Taif was not just any city either. Taif was a religious competitor to the Kaaba. The big draw in Taif was a shrine to the goddess Lot which was also a pilgrimage site. I don't see any evidence that they were at war or anything, but at a minimum they had a rivalry. Kind of a New York Chicago type of thing or insert a city rivalry from your corner of the world. You know how it is. You know, in my country, if someone ran for mayor of New York and then lost that election and then went to Chicago and tried to run for mayor of Chicago and lost, which he would lose, by the way, inevitably. You know, New Yorkers force themselves into Chicago all the time, from Al Capone's underworld business to Donald Trump's giant tower, but they don't tend to be very popular. Anyway, so that person loses in New York and Chicago. Now imagine, after that, that this person after failed bids to be the mayor of New York and Chicago, then went back to New York City to enter politics. That would be insane. And that person would be unelectable in both cities. Only in Muhammad's case, the stakes were much higher. A losing American political candidate gets embarrassed, really. I mean, that's the absolute worst that could really happen for the most part. But a 7th century prophet
1: faces murder.
0: So Muhammad needed protection. Or as a gangster might say, he needed muscle. He needed the protection of a clan. And it would not be his own clan, the Banu Hashim. That ship had sailed. Now under the circumstances, this really seemed impossible to find... Clan protection from anyone. After all that had happened, what clan in their right mind would voluntarily take up the headache of protecting Muhammad and answering for all the things he was saying against the gods of the Kaaba? And that's really what he needed not just individual muscle, but formal clan protection. You can think of it as an ancient Arabian form of a passport. In our world, a passport is not just something you need to enter another country. It's a document of clout, C-L-O-U-T, clout. It's a statement about who is protecting this person. And the more powerful the country, the more clout that that particular passport carries. If you travel on a country's passport that government has your back if things get problematic or the host country decides to mess with you for no reason. And that is way less likely if you carry a passport from a country with a lot of power and a history of doing nasty things to those who hurt its citizens. And Muhammad, you would think, might be happy for any form of protection, anything resembling a passport. but. Stunningly, he wasn't just looking for any passport. He wanted it from a powerful country. You know, he really wanted to do this right. He was thinking, say, the United States or China, UK, India, big countries with economic clout, fierce militaries and nuclear weapons. And stunningly,
1: unbelievably, he got one.
0: Now, this part I actually mentioned briefly in an earlier history episode on the boycott. That's episode 43, if you want to check it out. Because the person who volunteered to protect Muhammad, the person who somehow thought it was wise to just give him this powerful passport, that was the same guy who tore up the document declaring the boycott. The guy who ended it, basically. It was the tribal chief, Muta'im ibn Hadi. Now, he was not a Muslim, but he was the chief of the Banu Nafal clan. Zayd had gone before Muhammad to request this. And, you know, Muhammad was thinking before this about, you know, which clan chiefs might be friendly. And he basically sent messages to everybody that he could. And, stunningly, Mutaim ibn Adi was the only one who ever answered the call. Now, not only that, but he made it abundantly clear that any harm to Muhammad would start a blood feud with his clan. Mutaim ibn Adi gathered all the men of his clan dressed them up in military gear, and then marched them outside of the city to receive Muhammad, and then escort him to the Kaaba. When there, he announced his clan's protection of Muhammad. It was such an impressive display that even, even Abu Jahl, of all people, the prime Muslim hater at this point, even Abu Jahl agreed that Muhammad was
1: protected.
0: And all of this really does beg the question why did Mutam ibn Adi do all of this? What was his motivation? Unfortunately, Islamic history can sometimes be short on the motivations of its more peripheral characters like Mutam ibn Adi, you know, the, the minor actors in the Islamic story. So, a clear answer here is pretty hard to find. We're mostly left to speculate. Maybe it was an affinity for Muhammad that developed during the boycott. Maybe he was a contrarian who thought the whole town had lost its mind and the whole subject of the Muslims and Muhammad. Maybe there was some inter-clan political reason that this served. It certainly was not religious. Remember, this guy died a pagan. My best guess was that he was a pragmatist who wanted to always keep his business options open. He was an interesting guy, a complicated guy. He protected Muhammad and at the same time called him a liar. And he later helped rescue a Muslim who was detained and tortured as he attempted to leave Mecca for Medina. It really is a shame there isn't more available on this character because he's so fascinating. And a good novelist could write a whole book filling in the tantalizing blank spots in this story.
1: So who knows why he did it?
0: I can't give you a reason. I don't know. But Muhammad was able to return to Mecca because of this man. At least for a brief time. And things got better. Really, they would have to. That's just the natural order of things. After the worst time of your life, things don't get worse. They get better because you have hit bottom. Which is impossible to say to someone in a depressing situation. (laughs) Don't attempt to say that to somebody who is facing a real, real hardship. But the fact still remains, it will get better. It has to. It will. It always does. Just to try and personalize this feeling that Muhammad may have had. Just think back to the worst time in your life. Now, what happened? That line on a graph that would represent happiness did eventually start going up. It had to. Not necessarily because luck will change, although that is a statistical probability, but simply that once you're so far down and you're at a certain point, it simply doesn't take very much to take a step up. And these times tend to be transformative in a person's life when you look back. And it would be no different for Muhammad. You know, try and think of a moment like this in your life. I certainly have many. You know, I've heard this story from so many people so many times. It's pretty close to universal. Many of us have had years of sorrow and came
1: out better on the other side.
0: So here's a quick story. Now see if you can compare this to something in your life. And as you see in Muhammad's life. In one horrible year, I found myself 2,000 miles from anyone I loved. And then, not even a year out of college, the career I thought I would have for the rest of my life vanished in a very extreme and bizarre way. So bizarre, actually, that I was briefly famous for this, and not for any good reasons. And to top it all off, this whole thing happened because of an epic personal betrayal that just still leaves me baffled. You know, something that involved, I think, a genuinely crazy person and a compulsive liar. And then came a betrayal from friends who suddenly claimed to not know me. And then the school that had celebrated my work not only a year earlier, just completely abandoned me. I had no idea what I was going to do. And for good measure, the baseball team that I completely loathed won the World Series. During that year, a stranger approached me at a Costco of all places and said she had never seen someone that sad. I was dead inside. And it was so obvious that I was dead inside that people could see it from the outside. But then, in the very first week of that new year, I met the woman who would become my wife. And I received another gift, the city of Chicago. I felt like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, crawling through a mile of sewage to come out clean on the other side. And you know, as horrible as that was, I'm not sure I would change that horrible pain that I had to break through to find a more joyful life. I went through a similar period before we adopted my daughter, and it made me treasure her all the more, and it allowed the two of us to heal together. And like I said, you probably have a similar story. Most people do. It's not a rare thing. That's where the old saying comes from. It's always darkest before the dawn. Sorrow precedes joy. Muhammad would experience this as well. And if you think about it, among religious characters, it's not unique to Muhammad either. Heck, many biblical characters experience this. uh, Jesus, for certain, but also plenty of Old Testament people. uh, Noah, Joseph, Moses, Jonah... You know, after you're inside a whale, you know, anything is wonderful once you get outside. And for Muhammad, God had something pretty epic in store for him
1: after the year of sorrow ended.
0: The Muslims call it Al-Isra wa-Miraj. But it's more commonly known, at least to those in the English-speaking world, or at least those in the English-speaking world who have heard of this, as the night journey. And that will be the subject of next month's history episode. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.